Let's talk about science stuff. The good folks at NASA were a bit giddy last week uh, after they got another close-up shot of a comet. NASA rerouted the Deep Impact spacecraft, which uh, five years ago shot an 800-pound bullet into Comet Temple 1 to see what would happen. Which I know does sound like David Letterman throwing a watermelon off the top of the building to see what would happen. But it actually did produce some good science, but the spacecraft was out there. They looked around and said, where can we route this thing? And they said, you know what, if we plan our uh, navigation correctly five years in the future, we can shoot it past Common Hartley. Well, that day finally arrived, and, and uh, Common Hartley 2 got its close-up at uh, 10 o'clock uh, Eastern Time last Thursday. It passed within 435 miles of the comet, which is quite a small comet as these things go. This... Uh, Dirty Snowball, as uh, astronomer Fred Hoyle once labeled them, was only about 1.25 miles long, and when we got a look at it, it looked like a big bowling pin. Rays of gas and dust were shooting off its surface from its ends, which were rough in texture, while the surface in the center appeared smooth. If you uh, take some time with a small telescope or binoculars, I believe you can still see uh, Comet Hartley 2 up in the night sky. Comets are believed to be... uh, Primordial materials that date back to the beginning of the solar system 4.5 billion years ago. We can learn a lot by studying them. And by the way, most meteor showers, which occur regularly associated with uh, um, comets, more specifically the dust that comes off of them. article in New Scientist a couple months back by uh, Joe Marchant talks about something I, I had no idea about which was that according to ancient authors from Aristotle onwards, a meteorite the size of a wagon load crashed into northern Greece sometime between 466 and 468 B.C. The impact shocked the local population, and apparently the rock became a tourist attraction for 500 years. Someone took a look back at this and realized that there were accounts of a comet in the sky when the meteorite fell, and uh, they've done the math and determined that the timing corresponds to an expected pass of Halley's Comet. Thus, this crash of a, a wagon load worth of stuff may tie into a 5th century B.C. Uh, sighting of uh, a comet, which might well have been Halley's. The researchers have calculated that Halley's Comet should have been visible for a maximum of 82 days between about the 4th of June and the 25th of August, 466 B.C. And of course, when you have a meteor shower, or just a meteor in the sky, and whatever that it is that's causing it hits the ground, you then have a meteorite. And apparently the Landsat satellite data, which has made detailed images of the Earth's surface uh, since the 1970s, are being poured over in efforts to find uh, impact craters, and they are being found. In February of last year, Italian geologist Vincenzo Di Machel used Google Earth to spot a small, suspicious-looking depression in southern Egypt that showed a spray pattern of debris. A year later, a field expedition found that the 180-foot uh, Gebel Kamil crater is indeed an impact site, probably no more than 5,000 years old, and the area is littered with thousands of nickel-iron meteorites. Hope someday I can find a meteorite. That would be so cool. 
All right, and speaking of uh, ice and uh, celestial objects, which is pretty ratty segue, uh, we have this item coming from last week's New Scientist. The rise of complex life on Earth may have been given a boost by a spike in the levels of phosphate, best known now as a plant fertilizer. Timothy Lyons at the University of California in Riverside and colleagues have worked out how phosphate levels changed in Earth's oceans over the last 3 billion years by measuring the relative amount of phosphorus in 700 samples of various rock formations around the world. More phosphorus in the rocks means there was more of the mineral phosphate in the sea when they were formed. The team found that between 750 and 620 million years ago, phosphate levels were much higher than they were either before or since. That high level roughly corresponds to a period known as Snowball Earth, when most or possibly all the planet was iced over. Lyons says that shifting ice sheets would have ground away the continents, releasing large amounts of rocks and sediment rich in phosphate. And when the ice retreated, the phosphate would have been dumped into the oceans, creating a huge surplus. Phosphate is a fertilizer, and the surplus would have driven the growth of many more plants, says Lyon. In turn, these would have released extra oxygen into the atmosphere, making it more hospitable for multicellular animals. Article notes that the rise of complex animals has long been linked to a jump in atmospheric oxygen. Lyon says the phosphate spike could help explain why that happened. Which, doggone it, is some pretty interesting science. Of course, I guess if you're a Bible literalist, these events must have taken place sometime about 3,000 years ago. Here's one from the not-exactly-surprising article. Turns out smokers have more to fear than cancer and emphysema. People who smoke heavily in middle age are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's or other kinds of dementia later in life, according to research scientists with Kaiser Permanente in Oakland. Currently, researcher Rachel Whitmer looked at the health records of more than 21,000 Kaiser members going back to 1978 and after controlling for other factors linked to dementia. The study found that people who smoked two or more packs a day had a 114% increased risk of dementia. So for God's sakes, if you smoke, quit. And here's a weird one. According to Thomas Ma II in the Los Angeles Times, applying a mild electrical current to a particular part of the brain could improve mathematical abilities in people who suffer impaired skills or in patients who have suffered strokes or other neurological problems, according to British researchers. Evidently, the weak current apparently allows neurons to fire more freely, which stimulates the ability to learn, according to the research reported in the journal Current Biology. And yes, apparently reversing the flow of the current made it more difficult for neurons to fire and impaired learning ability. Well, maybe instead of trying to, uh, you know, per Arnold Schwarzenegger, get eighth graders doing algebra, maybe we can just run a current into people's brains. You can see Arnold. Yeah, I had forgotten the Pythagorean theorem, but now it has come back to me. And we're going to miss Arnold when he's gone. I do want to give him a pat in the back for, uh, for doing what he can to extend uh, the anti-gerrymandering efforts uh, a la Prop 20 into the congressional districts as well. Good idea. Every so often a science story comes completely out of left field, and you may have heard about this one. Apparently scientists at the University of Michigan went looking for where you could find the proteins capable of tasting bitterness. Of course, we've known these protein receptors were on our tongue with the familiar uh, sweet, sour, salty, 
and uh, and bitter tastes familiar to us. Also, the savory is what I guess they're calling it now. The Japanese call it umami, which is why food with monosodium glutamate tends to taste better. It hits those receptors. But, uh, you know, we expected to find taste receptors in your mouth, on your tongue. So imagine scientists' surprise when they discovered you had them in your lungs as well. Said study author Stephen Liggett, finding these receptors in a place where they weren't supposed to be was pretty exciting. The researchers had set out to, dis- to study how these smooth muscles of the lungs relax and contract. And the discovery of these taste proteins was so unexpected that we were at first quite skeptical, said Liggett. These proteins apparently were not clustered together as they are in the mouth, nor do they send direct signals to the brain, as the taste buds do. But when these receptors detect bitter airborne molecules, they prompt the airway to open. In fact, they apparently do this more profoundly than any known drug currently being used to treat asthma. Obviously, this holds out the promise that this discovery could lead to new asthma drugs. And of course, uh, scientists are puzzled and scratching their head and asking, why should your lung have such receptors? And when they first found them, Dr. Liggett and his colleagues thought the receptors were there to detect bitter plant toxins and thus perhaps protect the lungs by constricting the airway. But after they, uh, they tested standard bitter compounds on uh, both mouse and human smooth muscle tissue, they found the opposite was true. The bitter antimalarial drugs quinine and chloroquine, for example, relaxed the muscle cells. Look, it suggests that perhaps this reaction may enable bitter toxins to be coughed out more easily. Liggett's begun screening for bitter substances that could be used in inhalers to improve asthma treatments, but says he doubts whether consuming bitter foods or drinks would help people with asthma, adding it would uh, need to be taken in an inhaled form. Anyway, no one saw this coming, but this is really good news for people with lung disease. How about this item? We're all happier on sunny days, aren't we? But uh, people ask why that should be, and they think perhaps light taps directly into brain areas that process emotions. Article from the October 30th, New Scientist notes that although light is used to treat mood disorders, we don't understand how it works. While rods and cones in the eye process visible light, a third type of photoreceptor, which is particularly sensitive to blue light, evidently mediates non-visual responses such as sleep cycles and alertness. Thus, light may help us feel better because it uh, regulates circadian rhythms. I think this is the mechanism by which melatonin affects us. I'm not sure this is a blue light thing. Anyway, researchers over in Belgium scanned the brains of volunteers exposed to green or blue light while a neutral or angry voice recited meaningless words. They noted that the brain areas responsible for processing emotions responded more strongly to the angry voice, and the effect was amplified by blue light. Apparently, Gilles van der Waal at the University of Liege suggests that blue light is likely to amplify emotions in both directions. All right, we've got a few minutes left. Let's talk about uh, the continuing uh, degradation of news media in this country. Evidently, when MSNBC decided that its primetime commentator Keith Olbermann in his private life had made contributions to three different Democrats, that that was not going to fly, according to MSNBC. NBC News prohibits its employees from working on or donating to political campaigns unless a specific exemption is granted by the news division president. Of course, apparently Canning Olbermann uh, 
has caused a bit of a stink, and he's going to be brought back. But compare this to what's going on over at Fox. Second, I'm going to be published a column by Dana Milbank, which said, At Rupert Murdoch's cable network, an entity that birthed and nurtured the Tea Party movement, Election Day was the culmination of two years of hard work to bring down Barack Obama, and it was time for an on-air celebration of a job well done. Exulted Fox own, Fox's own Sarah Palin, That's an earthquake. It's a big darn deal, said Fox News contributor and Washington Post columnist Charles Krauthammer. It's a comeuppance, said Sean Hannity. I have one word. Historic. Noted Dana Milbank, this cheerleading on the final day of the 2010 election cycle was to be expected. Murdoch and News Corp took the unusual step of donating $1.25 million to the Republican Governors Association and another $1 million contribution to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which led the effort to defeat Democrats. He notes that, to be fair and balanced, Fox did bring in a nominal Democrat, pollster Doug Schoen, who said, This is a complete repudiation of the Democratic Party. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, dear listener, but pollsters tend to be a little bit partisan at times. In fact, uh, I saw a thing on TV the other day where they were showing a Republican uh, uh, PR specialist and pollster. I guess the point of the herd mentality is to say, everybody likes Joe, you better vote for him too. But as he so often does, uh, Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury always seems to just nail something in four panels that uh, columnists can spew lots of words on and still don't manage to nail as effectively as he does. He had a strip last week where uh, Roland Burton Headley, the reporter, is interviewing George W. Bush. Bush says, TARP was definitely one of my most difficult decision points. I didn't have a problem with bailing out bankers. They're all good folks. But I was worried that people might remember it was my idea and the Democrats wouldn't get blamed. Roland goes, wow, that is a tough call, Bush. There are some sleepless nights, but hey, it worked out. Yeah, I was amused by the fact that apparently Obama was to blame in the eyes of so many people for bailing out Wall Street with the TARP or Troubled Asset Relief Program. But on my refrigerator, I still have a photo of a bewildered-looking Bush who invited in the two candidates, John McCain and Barack Obama, to talk about what we're going to do. And what they were going to do in the fall of 08 was give all their friends on Wall Street hundreds of billions of dollars, which they did. So yeah, wouldn't you say TARP was George Bush's idea? Well, he's peddling books now, and Barack Obama took the heat on on Election Day. Sad. We refer you to the website uh, whowhatwhy.com from last week's guest Russ Baker to look about to see his little commentary on his book versus George Bush's. They've apparently printed up 1.1 million copies of George Bush's memoirs, where he admits that, uh, you know, the waterboarding was was okay by him and inserts the dubious claim that he was thinking about firing Dick Cheney at one point. Come on, let's face it. We all know Dick wasn't going to let him do that. Anyway, our thanks to Ambassador Joe Wilson for speaking to us years ago on this program. We'd love to have him back on the show at some point. I recommend his book to you very highly, The Politics of Truth, and, of course... The current movie, Fair Game, which hopefully will be coming to our local area soon. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'll be back again next week at the same time. We'll see you then. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you smaller.
Chasing rabbits 